first three pieces of property that I owned were all medical buildings. Um, the first one was the one that we practiced in. So I think it, it, that one is especially important uh, for a doctor to own your own building. There are so many advantages to doing that. Um, some of them include the, the tax ramifications uh, that happen. Um, you get uh, depreciation, you know, you own a business that could use write-offs for things that can be used for that business. But the biggest thing for a physician is if you set your, you own your own business, you own your own building, and you set the rent high, then you are transferring some of your W-2 type income into passive real estate income. And it gets taxed better than earned income. This is the Providers, Properties, and Performance Podcast, the podcast that brings together leaders in healthcare and investment real estate to consider the possibilities in future at the intersection of practicing medicine and healthcare real estate investment returns. Welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance Podcast. I am your host, Trisha Talbot. As a healthcare real estate advisor to providers and investors, the best solutions occur when the two collaborate together as partners in delivering better patient care. Providers can deliver care to their patients when and where they need it, and investors realize the returns to build and manage facilities. We explore changes in medicine and wellness, the future of healthcare, and using real estate as a strategic and financial tool. Today's episode of the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast is with Dr. Corey Fawcett a former surgeon and current real estate entrepreneur discussing a clinician's journey through his real estate investment path from physician owner to retired surgeon to investing in other income producing real estate assets and now teaching other clinicians the same through coaching several books that he has published and can be found at financialsuccessmd.com. So, uh, Corey, welcome to the providers properties and performance podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So you, um, you're a, a doctor, a former surgeon, teaching other physicians about entrepreneurism, financial management, and real estate investing. So what started you down this path? Well, I uh, always have been a little different in how I handled my money compared to everyone else. Um, it turns out, you know, back in, in, in residency, I was actually one of the few people who contributed to my retirement plan. <laughs> and I couldn't get other people to do that. And, and when I went to buy my first house, uh, the banker actually said, uh, is this stuff real that, that I, I turned in everything to get pre-approved for a loan? And I said, well, yeah. And I'm thinking, man, he's not going to approve me. I don't make enough money or something's not right. And he sets down his pen and he says, you know what? You are the first 20 something who's ever walked into my office with a positive net worth. How much <laughs> do you want? And I kind of began to realize I was doing things differently and, and other people began to notice that. And when the other doctors began to notice that they kept coming to me for advice and I just kind of evolved into teaching doctors about finance, uh, real estate, uh, how to get out of debt. Um, and those things just kind of kept expanding until finally, when I was ready to retire uh, at age 50, I kind of cut back my practice for a few years and kind of coasted into retirement, easing things out, and then decided that my new mission in my retirement era uh, was going to be to teach doctors this uh, for, for real and just, just make it a formal thing instead of, you know, just talking over a patient during surgery 
or hanging out in the doctor's lounge. So I just kind of evolved from something that I did as, as a passion on the side to something that I actually get paid to do today. Well, and uh, you state that your mission is to you know eliminate burnout, which is real, uh, debt and bankruptcy among physicians, dentists, and others in the healthcare industry. So why do you think burnout is happening at such a prevalent pace, I think, right now? I think one of the biggest problems about burnout is that doctors are converting from owning practices to being owned by someone else's practice. And when that happens and you lose control of what's happening and you have to do what someone else says, I think that takes you down a very different road than when you own things and and you control things and you decide. I was just talking to a doctor uh, yesterday uh, on a coaching call, and she was saying uh, that she was feeling burned out and couldn't figure out what to do with it. I said, well, why don't you change, you know, one little change might be move your, your, your office visits from every 10 minutes to just every 15 minutes, a simple change like that to give you a little bit of breathing room. And her answer was, they won't let me, (laughs) I have to do the, the, the slots the way they are. If she had been in her own practice uh, and she could have said, I think I need to do that. I need to lighten my load just a little bit. If I just moved every 15 minutes, it will, it will improve things a bit. uh, And I can relax a little more instead of feeling like I'm, I'm pushing a production line. And so she couldn't do that simply because she was employed by someone else who was telling her what to do. And I think when things like that happen, if someone else is in charge and you see, you need to change something to stay healthy and not burn out, Uh, sometimes you can't, or sometimes you feel like you can't, a lot of times you have a lot more power to make these changes than you think you do. Um, and you're just afraid to make the move. So for me, for instance, uh, debt was an issue. Uh, even though I was in private practice, I had a high debt. I, I, at one point I, I, I hit as high as 600 and some thousand dollars of debt. And my wife and I set out to become debt free, which is, kind of the whole book of my doctor's guide to um, eliminating debt. But that debt, because I had it, I was afraid to make two changes in my practice that I needed to make. Because I there was two procedures, uh, vascular surgery and thoracic surgery. I hated doing them. <laughs> they made anxiety. They got patients in the ICU. They they got more calls at night from those patients. And, and, and I wanted to get rid of them, but they paid the best of everything. And these were my high, uh, high number procedures. And so I was afraid to get rid of them as long as I had a home mortgage hanging over my head and the other debt that went along with it. But when I became debt-free, I then developed the courage to say, I'm going to get rid of those things, even if it drops my income, because now it doesn't matter if my income drops a little bit because I don't have those debts to pay and I'll get by just fine. And I dropped them. I went to the office manager and said, take uh, all of my thoracic patients and give them to this partner because they like thoracic surgery. Take all my vascular patients, give them to this partner because uh, they like vascular surgery and I don't want to see those patients anymore. And I let the chips fall and, and nothing happened. My income didn't even drop. All of that fear that my income would drop was unfounded. Because when I moved those cases to my partners, they had to displace some cases back to me in order to take them. And they displaced to me stuff I liked even better. My practice got better because my financial situation improved to the point that I felt confident to make the changes 
that I was afraid to make before. And this high debt load that doctors are, are facing today, I think, is another factor in why burnout is growing higher as medical education gets more and more expensive. Absolutely. And what do you think about, um, you know, going back to doctors being employed versus unemployed, being able to make their own decisions? Uh, you know, if you if you are in a practice that has a PA or an MA or a medical scribe, but then, you know, something happens and they have to cut costs and you know, you have this operation where that's helping you support your ability to see more patients and focus on the patients that need you the most. Does some of that happen where there's this cost cutting thing? And then all of a sudden, you know, the staff that was there to support you goes away and then the doctor is expected to absorb it. Uh, I think that happens a lot. And what's interesting is those assistants never get cut from the CEO. <laughs> right. uh, the CEO is not cut in their own assistants uh, so that they have to do their own typing and 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 take care of their own letters and send them out. No, their assistants are still there. In fact, they add a few more. Um, but the first thing that gets cut might be your assistant that's helping you get through the day. And they just figure, well, shoot, you can just do that yourself. You should just type your own notes or, or, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, and the doctors sometimes just feel helpless uh, with that. They don't feel like they have the power to uh, control that. I, I can give an example of one time when I took that power. Um, after I retired from my regular practice of 20 years, I became a locums doctor for a few years. And I was working in critical access hospitals, uh, places that only had one surgeon. And so I'd come in and, and give them a break for a week. Okay. So I was at one of these places and, and they, really, they really felt like they needed me there. Okay. I was really helping keep their surgeon healthy. And there was a contract dispute with us and uh, they said, oh yeah, okay, we'll take care of that. This is something I wanted to have happen. They said it would, they would do it, but it wasn't seeming to happen, right? And so I, I, uh, I kept being patient. Uh, each month I'd say, hey, we didn't fix that problem. Oh yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. And then uh, one day I went into him and I said, you know, for six months now, you've been telling me you'll get to that. And I've been patiently waiting for you to take care of this, but I'm done waiting. <laughs> There's a place in Hawaii that's asking me to come out there and work. And, you know, I would love to take my wife to Hawaii and get paid to be there and work near the beach. Okay. Right. So this is the deal. If by the end of the month, the contract thing isn't all solved, I'm off the schedule and I'll be going to Hawaii. <laughs> He said, oh, no, we'll take care of it. You go tell Hawaii, no, you're staying here with us. <laughs> you, can, you can tell right then I had some power. Whether I had known it before, I knew I had power at that moment. No, you tell Hawaii you're staying with us. And I said, no, you've said that before. I can't tell that to Hawaii until I have a contract in my hand that's correct. Mm -hmm. Within 72 hours, it was all taken care of. Six months of farting around because I wasn't exercising the power that I had got taken care of in 72 hours because I decided to flex my muscle and say, listen, I know I have power. I'm going to use it. Either fix this or I'm going somewhere else. But if you're deep in debt and uh, you have no reserves, you just don't have the courage to tell them you're going somewhere else. Right. Because it is very expensive for a doctor to change jobs. In my first book, I actually followed one of my friends when he changed jobs. What did it cost him? And it cost him over $175,000 to swap jobs. Mm. 
And so it's expensive for us to leave our job. And if we don't have backup, we don't have a good financial footing, uh, we can be very intimidated to not rock the boat and not get what we want. But when you finally get the courage to do something, you often dis- discover that you have a lot more power than you thought you had. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and you said you were able to retire at 54. You want to walk us through that? So when I was in medical school, I had made a plan to be financially independent by age 50. I showed that to another doctor. He said, that's not possible. I think he was over 50 at the time and he couldn't retire. So he was like, oh, you're never going to be able to do that. So I just followed my plan. And by the time I reached 50, I was financially independent. The thing I didn't count on is originally was saying that I would also retire at age 50. I didn't count on when I was in my 20s that when I was 50, I would have liked to stay in surgery because I I enjoyed it. Uh, I had a good practice. I had made changes to my practice as I got more and more financially secure so that my practice grew better and better with time, got rid of stuff I didn't like doing, got more of the stuff I liked doing. I took eight to 12 weeks of vacation every year during my practice. So I I had a, a nice thing going. You know, this is a good job. It's fun. I enjoyed my patients. I enjoyed operating. So I wasn't prepared that when I did reach 50, I didn't want to retire. Mm. (laughs) So I just kept working, but then I worked Mm halftime and I wanted to cut way back so that life was really nice for us. But in my partnership, we didn't really have a halftime option the way the contract was set up, that the real problem was how we handled our overhead. And I would still be responsible for my share of the overhead, no matter how low I took my practice. And as my wife put it, you know, if you work any less than this, you're going to be paying them to work. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't going to be good. So they weren't willing to make it different. So I had to retire from the practice and then became a locums doctor. And uh, that allowed me to kind of slow down over time and uh, ease into retirement. So I just didn't go from full-time surgeon to nothing. And I, and I gently worked my way down until I actually got to the point where I was doing so few cases as it went down that I began to question how, what the next step was in a case. And I realized, oh man, this isn't going to bode well as I begin to do this. I was losing my edge because I just wasn't doing enough. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I had to make it, that was a break point. I had to decide one of two things. I either have to work more so that I keep the numbers up and, and you, you stay good at what you're doing, or I have to just call it quits. And at that point, I was, I was ready to call it quits because I'd slowed down enough. And finally, I was, I was able to let it go. And so then at 54, I saw my last patient. Well, in your book about uh, teaching doctors about real estate investing, you, you talk about your success in investing in, in, part, in, a, in an apartments. Um, but, you know, my podcast is about and, and my business is on healthcare real estate. So I wanted to pick your brain about what you think, you know, about a practice or an entrepreneurial physician purchasing an income producing property that they also occupy space in um, or that they just own for their own practice. But uh, with 
and they can either buy a property that's bigger than their practice and lease out the balance or operate, you know, just to have the a build a suit type of situation or, or buy a property that they operate their practice out of um, in order to build equity, but basically investing in themselves by first investing in the real estate that they have a practice operating out of. So the interesting thing about my real estate book is I begin that book in my journey when my wife and I begin buying our own investments, I actually skip the first three investments I have, which were uh, physician properties that are owned in a partnership with other people. Mm -hmm. And I skipped that because that was a partnership thing. And I began my story usually at where I started to do it on my own and how you can do things on your own. But if, if we back up, the first three partnership, first three pieces of property that I owned were all medical buildings. Um, the first one was the one that we practiced in. So I think it, it that one is especially important uh, for a doctor to own your own building. There are so many advantages to doing that. Um, some of them include the the tax ramifications uh, that happen. Um, you get uh, depreciation, you know, you own a business that could use write-offs for things that can be used for that business. But the biggest thing for a physician is if you set your, you own your own business, you own your own building, and you set the rent high, then you are transferring some of your W-2 type income into passive real estate income. And it gets taxed better than earned income. Earned income is the highest tax bracket. <laughs> the most taxes you can pay for anything is earned income. So when you own the building, you're transferring some of that earned income by paying rent to your building, which your building then makes money and pays you as passive income that's not earned income. And it decreases your tax bill uh, by doing that. So you, and you also get the appreciation that's going to happen over time. And, and why would you spend your whole life paying rent to somebody else when you could have been paying rent to yourself and increasing equity? So I think owning your own building is a, is a no-brainer. You, you ought to be doing that. Uh, and, and in my practice, uh, it was put to me that uh, you can buy in when, when I when I first was joining the practice, you can buy into the building if you want to. If you do it, you'll have all these advantages. If you don't want to buy into the building, that's fine, but you'll be paying us rent on the high end of the scale. Now, given that choice, either you can make money with us on this deal or you can pay us money to live in this building that we own. It, it, it's a no-brainer. Of course, I'm going to become partner in that deal. And, and that's the same way it is with any building you're in. Unfortunately, if you work for somebody else, like a big hospital, often they own that building and they don't want to share that yeah. ownership with you. And you know, if they don't want to share that ownership with you, there must be money in it or, or they'd be happy to share it with you. So that was the first one that I owned. The second building that I owned uh, we was a surgery center that we built, and we had lots of partners in that deal. And the third one was a multi-doctor building uh, next door to the surgery center. When we bought the surgery center lot, it was too big, so we built the surgery center. And then with the other half of the lot, we built another office building for other doctors. 
And in all of those, I've been a, a partner in a big group. The medical office building that I worked in, the deal was once you're not a partner, you can't own this anymore. It was only owned within the partnership as part of being a partner. And so I had to sell out on that. But I still own part of the other two buildings as a partner in, in the group. So I think those are, are really great ways for physicians to invest. And do you think medical office properties, like the ones that you described, obviously the ones that you operate in um, or operate a practice out of a surgery center, those are easy, but you know, if, if a physician is looking at a multi-tenant medical office building, they could kind of look at the practices in it and kind of understand how maybe the good, the tenant mix might support their practice. Uh, do you think it's easier for a clinician to, to look at the real estate and understand it versus you know, an apartment building or maybe a retail if they aren't familiar with that type of asset class? I think it's it's much easier. If you've never owned an apartment, that first one you're buying is pretty scary. <laughs> but usually you you run an office. And so you, you're familiar with that. You already know uh, what it's like to have an office and, and pay rent for an office and how it's taken care of. You, 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 you're familiar with that already. Uh, so the multi, I own a multi-physician um, building, uh, and there's more than just physicians in that building. Um, and I found that when you are a partner in that building, you definitely have a pull to refer to those people because mm -hmm. part of their success is tied to your success. And so if there's an orthopedic surgeon in that building and your kid gets hurt, needs an orthopedic surgeon, that's the one that comes to mind first. The guy who, you know, if, if he uh, makes uh, something, uh, you know, I, I have a friend, a great example is I have a friend who owns a Carl's Jr. They own the building. They don't own the Carl's Jr. business, but they own the building and Carl's Jr. rents the building from them. So when they're going to go to fast food, guess where they go? They go to the Carl's Jr. that they own the building of, because as long as that person's making good money, then they can pay the rent and I'm making good money. And so there's definitely a tie. And when we were setting up the surgery center, we used that tie to bring other doctors in town. So we set up the surgery center as two different businesses. One was the people who owned the surgery center business itself, and those were only the surgeons involved in the surgery center. You had to be a, an, a, bit, uh, a user of the facility to be an owner of that. And then we had a second business that owned the building and the surgery center would rent from the building. And in that we invited any doctor in town, whether they were gonna be using the surgery center or not to be part of it. The reason we did that was if they are a part of this deal, they will want to get their cases referred to the surgery center so that it does well so that they end up getting their rent paid and they make money as well. Because we did that, there was a competing surgery center in, in a nearby city that was owned only by, I think it was anesthesia. Anesthesia were the only people that owned this thing. In our first year, by including everybody in town in the deal, in our first year, we outdid that other surgery center in their fifth year because everybody was included. Now, in that group, if only the anesthesiologists are going to benefit if we send it there, I don't have any real incentive to send you those patients. But if I'm going to get some kind of a benefit from doing this, I would be inclined to say, oh, gosh, let's get it done over at the surgery center. 
It's just something that mentally we do if we're connected with something. And so I think, yeah, having a multi-office building uh, with, with multiple different practices and it will actually change your practice pattern and you'll involve those people more. But if you, um, you know, you're a, a, a multi-physician practice, like you just ex- uh, explained and you have a, some sort of rapid growth plan where instead of one surgery center and one medical office building, you wanted, there's three different parts of town. It's a large city and you want to be able to um, open up three at a time, but obviously that's a huge capital investment. What is your thought of you know, people that are familiar with the asset class and familiar with doing joint ventures with a physician group, accessing those for capital in order to, to expand quickly. Um, we actually did that with the, the multi-office building uh, because we didn't get enough capital from the doctors that are in the area. So we opened it up to other people as well. I think my preference is to not have partners because partners add complication. But sometimes you can't make the deal happen on your own and you need to bring in somebody to help you with the deal. Like when we were doing the surgery center I mean, you think about the, the anesthesia people, they didn't have extra partners. So it was less complicated, but they didn't make as much money because they didn't have as much business because it didn't involve other people. So I think there will be times in your life where you have a project that you want to do but you personally don't have enough resources to do the whole thing by yourself. And then strategically pulling in some partners from elsewhere, I think uh, may be the only way you can do it and you'll then still succeed at what you do. Uh, so I, I, I'm involved in, in those as well. And I think they are a good idea. Well, let's discuss managing real estate uh, for you know, physicians that are, that are always busy. You, you talked about how in the first year you owned your first investment, you did it yourself um, in order to figure out which parts you, you know, you didn't like. So please share the parts of managing and, and what you learned that first year um, to yes. find out what you didn't like and, and what you like and what you don't. So we, uh, when we ventured into it, we said we would do everything for 12 months, my wife and I and the kids would do everything involved in the 31 unit apartment complex for 12 months. It was not that big a deal to do that um, as a full-time surgeon. And my wife was a stay-at-home mom. After the 12 months, uh, then we decided to farm out things. And we knew because we've done the job ourselves exactly what it takes. So it was easier for us to understand what those people needed and what it was worth paying for those services. And so we automated everything and farmed out all the pieces. So for the next about 12 years, I was the manager of the properties and uh, I took care of them for about 10 hours a month. It's it's about what it took me uh, to take care of the properties. And I did keep a few things that I enjoyed doing. I enjoyed picking the tenants. I mean, they're going to be in my place. I, I, I enjoyed meeting them. I enjoyed... Uh, picking them out and and deciding which tenants are going to be there. A lot of doctors want like some big wall to make them invisible. So nobody knows that who that they own the place. And I got this LLC in some other name and no one will ever see me. And they'll never know a doctor owns a place as if somehow that was a big detriment if they knew a doctor owned the place. I think it's only a detriment if you're a slumlord and you have a crappy place there and people don't like it and they're complaining about you then you're going to get a bad reputation as a doctor, you know, but if you're going to take the place 
seriously and and treat these people well and and provide them good housing uh there is not a problem with them knowing that the doctor owns a place uh i've i, I even had got patients because they knew I, I was their landlord and I was a good guy. And so they would come to, to me instead of someone else when they needed something done. So I, I enjoyed that part. And so I kept that part, but farmed everything out. And people got to asking me so many times, how do you do that? How can you manage? It seems to me like managing one place feels like a second job. To me, and you're managing 65 rental units, and it's only 10 hours a month. How do you do that? I, I ended up developing a, a course on automating your real estate to keep answering that question instead of having to start over from scratch and tell somebody, okay, here's how I did it. You know, um, but it's just a matter of making systems, just like in your doctor's office. I like to tell the doctor, you know, think about your own office, whether you're employed or you own the place. Do you answer the phone when the phone rings? If you need somebody scheduled for something, are you the one on the phone trying to figure out when that's going to happen? Are you on the phone with the insurance companies? Do you log the blood pressure into the chart? I mean, you don't do everything in your office. You have things automated. They, they Everybody knows when someone walks in the door, this is what happens. Okay. So why is it when we suddenly get involved in a piece of real estate, we think that we have to do everything. I have to answer the phone. If, if, if there's a leak, they have to call me on my private cell phone line. You, you don't do that in your office. You don't give your patients out your private cell phone line and say, just call me if you have anything. You know, you, you, your schedule doesn't work out or you have to change your appointment. Just call me. Yeah. You don't do that in your office. So you shouldn't do that with any other business that you're involved in, including your real estate. You should be automating everything that can be automated. And then if there is a part you like doing, you can do that. So I did that for 12 years, but then I retired. My original plan would be when I retired, I would pick up more of those things and I would do more things instead of hiring them out. Like I'll do the painting instead of hiring a painter. I'll save me two grand every time we turn over a unit. And, and you know, uh, that was my plan. The problem was when I actually retired, we started traveling and we were gone more than 50% of the time. I did not feel comfortable being the manager of my property on a cruise ship off the coast of Brazil. That just didn't set right with me. It didn't feel like I could provide the service that was needed. And so I actually completely automated everything and turned everything over to a property manager. A time when I thought I would increase how much I was doing, I actually decreased how much I was doing to where now I do almost zero with the properties that I own. The, the property management company takes care of everything and I can just tool around the world wherever I want. And I spent in 2019, I spent two months uh, uh, in Europe. We walked the Camino de Santiago with our backpacks. Yeah. And my 450 miles we walked with our phones on airplane mode. <laughs> and all during that time, the checks kept getting deposited in the bank. If I needed money, I just go to an ATM and get it. I mean, that's what passive income is all about. And if you can't learn to make money while you're walking across Spain, <laughs> you're going to have to work <laughs> forever. And so I think automating everything 
uh, is the answer for you so that you can live a life and make money at the same time. So um, this has been great. And I'm going to move into the Q&A real quick, but I just have a question. Do you do you miss surgery at all? I was worried about that uh, when I was going to retire. Was I going to miss it? Six months later, was I going to be a doctor again and, and they're working? Uh, and no, I do not. I wrote a blog article about that. Well, you miss surgery when you retire. And I did miss surgery for a few minutes when I was watching this one Hallmark movie about a doctor. And I was seeing the patient interaction. And I says, you know, I really missed that. And then my wife pointed out to me all the reasons why I retired. And then I was over with that. Right. Uh, so there was a few minutes there where I missed it. I, I, I do miss those interactions that we got with patients. I miss saving people's lives. That was kind of fun and exhilarating. But in the balance, I haven't missed it. You can't imagine going back to that life again uh, as a trauma surgeon. That's pretty hectic uh, life. And I enjoy this uh, relaxed retirement kind <laughs> now. Um, so let's move into Q&A. Uh, what was your first job? Well, you know, that's a hard question to answer. Um, if we say job, the first time somebody specifically employed me as an employee, because before my first job, I was an entrepreneur and I ran a lot of businesses as a teenager. I owned a rock and roll band. Uh, I was the uh, manager, lead guitar player and singer in a rock band. And we made lots of money as teenagers. Uh, back in the 70s, I remember digging up a book just recently and I found my ledger from the 70s. And, and us teenagers, we weren't old enough to drive. Our, my dad had to drive us to gigs. Uh, we made 20,000 bucks back in the seventies as, as these kids. You wow. know? So, and I was mowing lawns and I was teaching piano lessons and I, you know, so I was doing all these things. And then it came time for me to actually make some money as an employee. And the very first job I got was to be a bellman at a local uh, red lion hotel. And I had just graduated from high school and I was about to go to college. I needed to earn some more money. So I just went, I actually just walked through town, stopping at every single place saying, I'm looking for a job. I'm looking for a job, I'm looking for a job. And I walked into this place and the guy said, what kind of job would you like? And I said, any job you got, I just want to earn some money. And he said, uh, I said, I'll even wash dishes. doesn't matter. He says, you don't seem like the dishwasher kind to of me. You seem like you should be my bellman. Hmm. You want to do that? I never heard of a bellman before. Uh, he said, I said, uh, sure, I don't, I don't know what it is, but I said, sure, I'll do that. And so he actually made a quick call while I'm sitting there. He called his bellman in, you know, I don't remember the guy's name, but he says, you know, Bob, you're fired. Give me your uniform. And he took the uniform. I have my eyes are like, whoa. And he handed it to me. He says, you're the bellman now. And that was my first oh my introduction to what it's like to be owned by somebody else. Because that other guy, he just, just because he found somebody he liked better, he just called the guy in and said, you're fired. Goodbye. And that was my first job. <laughs> wow. Um, what else uh, could you see yourself ever doing for a living? There were two other branch points during my life. Um, I almost quit medical school. Uh, at the end of my second year of medical school, I recorded an album uh, of my original music. And uh, I had, a, I had a decision to make then. It, it, it was very clear to me that I, medicine required full-time and music would require full-time. I can't part-time do both. Uh, and I had to make a decision. So I decided that I'd play music for fun and I went for medicine. And before that in college, there was another branch point. 
uh, it was just before the Macintosh computer got in, introduced and I was at school in Stanford where I was right in Silicon Valley, right when the whole thing was gonna balloon up and I was doing computer programming classes and the, the guy who ran the class kind of said, you know, you are a natural at computer programming. Um, why don't we get you lined up, you know, to be doing this for a living? And I said, no, I wanted to be a doctor. And he says, oh, what a waste. Anybody who can get good grades can be a doctor, but not everybody can program like you. And so, you know, I always wonder what would have happened if I had jumped ship from my medical idea and gotten into computer programming right as Microsoft and Apple were beginning uh, to take place. Um, I wonder where I would have been today if I had been, you know, Apple's computer programmer. <laughs> so those were the two things that, that happened. And today I'm actually retired from medicine. I'm going back to music. So I'm learning uh, piano bar sets and I'm going to be playing at restaurants and maybe on cruise ships and stuff like that just for fun because I love to play music. Oh, fun. Wonderful. What are, who are you reading or listening to right now for news information or inspiration? Um, I read a lot. Uh, probably between 50 and 70 books a year. And it's funny what I, I read. Uh, when we first retired, we realized, ah, we're going to be reading a lot. So we were going to garage sales and buying books because I could buy a whole box of books for 25 cents or a dollar, you know? So we got, I've got this attic full of books now. I kind of overdid it. And so when uh, <laughs> I kind of go back and forth between a self-help kind of book to learn something to get make me better uh, and a book that uh, is just for fun, uh, just a novel. So I love, you know, science fiction, fantasy type novels. And so I'll go kind of back and forth between those. And I'm right in the middle of um, uh, men are from Mars and women are from Venus uh, <laughs> to uh, a book I had read in the past just to remember some relationship things to, to keep my relationship alive uh, as well. Oh, that's nice. Uh, what is one thing you do every day for healthy self-care? I don't have an alarm clock anymore. Uh, and so I get to sleep in now until I'm done sleeping. <laughs> uh, so I think that is uh, a big change. When I retired from medicine, I always thought that I was a night owl. I love, you know, playing music late at night. I can play a gig till two in the morning, drive home, but I want, I hated getting up in the morning. I wanted to sleep in. And, and every Saturday during my practicing years, I always slept in a couple hours later than my wife. Then I retired. And within a couple of months, I was always waking up a couple of hours before my wife. And I find out I wasn't really a night owl. It's just that I was perpetually tired. And I needed some extra sleep in the morning. And when I retired and got all the sleep I needed, I began waking up earlier. Uh, and it took me a couple of months actually to be caught up on sleep from the sleep deprivation I had as a surgeon. So trying to get enough sleep hmm. is probably the, the biggest uh, health habit I have. So I have two questions, um, but typically one's for a clinician and then one's for uh, a business owner, but uh, you're both. So I'll start with, um, are leaders born or trained? I think it's a little of both. I think you have 
you are born with some kind of an inclination of whether you like to lead or you like to follow, which one of those is your preferred mode. But then if you want to become a good leader, you're going to have to train for that. You just, you're not born with the skills that it takes to be a leader. You might've been born with the desire uh, to lead rather than follow, but you're going to have to have a little both the desire that you were born with and the knowledge that you picked up. Well, that might be the same answer to the question I ask clinicians where are, do you think people are born with like a, obviously a desire to heal and then, um, and then medically trained or, you know, are some people more naturally gifted well, to do that? I think the reason I'm a doctor is because my grandfather who was a millwright. Um, when I was a little kid, my grandfather used to read me this book called Dr. Goat. And it was about a doctor or about a goat who goes around and heals everybody. And then one day he gets sick and then all of the animals come back and take care of the doctor. And at the end, it says, and the very next day he was on his way, three cheers for Dr. Goat. But when I was like two or three, uh, that book was totally memorized. We had read it so many times sitting in his lap. And he used to put on a show like that. People would come over and says, oh, yeah, well, what can your what can this little kid do? He says, well, he can read. And it was like, there's no way that that little kid can read. Watch this. And he would turn to any page in the book. And he would say the words wrong. And I would say, that's not what that says. That says, and then, and everybody thought I could read, but I just knew what it said on every single one of those pages. And I think that that drilled into my mind, sitting on grandpa's lap, seeing what it was like to be a doctor, how they helped everybody. And then those people came back and helped the doctor. I think that is what made me all the way as far back as I can remember, I wanted to be in healthcare. And I think it was my grandfather's uh, little book. And today that book sits on the mantle at my house, this old version of a book called Dr. Goat that's not even in print anymore. I read it to my grandson a couple of days ago. And when I went to open it, the cover completely fell apart. It's just, it's, <laughs> it's, it's in pieces. But um, so I think I was, uh, it was my environment that made me want to be a doctor. No one in my family had ever been a doctor. In fact, I was the first person of my relatives, my ancestors to go to college. Very nice. Well, Corey, this has been a wonderful interview. I really do appreciate your time. Well, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun to be here. I'm grateful for you tuning in to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with others. As a disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended for specific real estate investment advice.